Founded in 2010 on a very small grant, now 250 people, 1,000 eyes, again, helping teams, really network teams, make really what's invisible visible so they can go attack the right problems, whether it's website loading time, a cybersecurity use case, or other things. They have over 500 customers paying, caught on average, $100,000 ACV. Net revenue retention, world-class in the 130-ish, 140% range, with an eye to the being IPO-ready in the next two to two and a half years. Hello, everybody. My guest today is Mohit Lad. He runs a company called Thousand Eyes, which empowers businesses to see, understand, and improve connected experiences everywhere. The cloud platform offers unmatched vantage points through the global internet and provides immediate visibility into experience for every user and application over any network so companies can deliver superior digital experiences. The company is central to the global or operations of the world's largest and fastest growing brands, including Comcast, eBay, HP, 100 of the Global 2000, and 60 of the Fortune 500, along with five of the six top U.S. banks and 20 of the 20 top SaaS companies. Mohit, are you ready to take us to the top? Uh, yeah, I am. Look forward to it. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. This all, this all started with what, a million dollar grant that you got in small chunks, huh? Yeah, so it actually started with a 150K grant that was from the National Science Foundation. And we chose it out of building the company based on really building a, a first version of the product and taking it to market versus raising venture money. So that grant over a period of time over the next two years uh, totaled about a million dollars. But yeah, small start. Well, that's right. And what year was that? When did you launch? So this was 2010. So we, we started the company officially in 2010 and we launched the product in 2013. But we started selling it from uh, early 2011 and we're just sort of acquiring customers, making sure we really understand what what are the problems we're solving for the customers and then working on from there. Yeah, so, so give us a good example here so people can really wrap their head around what you do because you obviously touch a lot of big brands, but what do you specifically do for, say, one of the top six U.S. banks? Yeah, so uh, we really help people understand how the internet works and how it's affecting digital experience. And so there's uh, there's several examples of how we help, but the, the one example that resonates a lot with folks is if you have an online asset, let's say you're a banking site that you're reaching your consumer users that are all over the world and you're relying on this public best effort internet to actually reach them. And we help them uh, help our brands really have this Google Maps like view of what the red is and how can they actually route around it. So you would be still able to get a great uh, amount of reachability to your user base. So that's one use case and the same technology also works uh, when you are a large enterprise organization and you're going to cloud-based applications like Office 365 and Salesforce and all these apps that are outside because you're still dependent on this internet, which is outside your four walls as a network. So we're really helping people understand these complex environments and help them uh, run their business and ensure the best digital experience for their customers. And so what's an action someone might take once they start using you? You make the you make the invisible visible. They see red spots. What do they do to correct yeah. the red spots? So uh, oftentimes the, the most basic things people get into when there is an issue is uh, gathering 10 teams, the app team, the server team, the network team, the infrastructure team, and nobody knows what's going on. So just the starting point of where do we even start? to look at where the problem is, is really important. So one of the first things we do is let them have a very clear understanding of the application is fine, the servers are fine, the network is a problem, so the rest of the guys can go. Now the network team, it's not your network, it's the internet. So, okay, now that we know that it's the internet, which part of the internet, and then you can understand how do you fix it. So, for example, most online businesses would have multiple um, providers that they use at their data centers, and once they know where the issue is, they can move traffic away from one, move it towards another. If you're using a CDN, 
and uh, one of the uh, one of the areas that the CDN has uh, is problematic, then you again help them understand what needs to be fixed. So, so, if, so if a company has a highly trafficked pricing page and they w- want to knock a couple of milliseconds off the load time because that'll increase conversions by 3%, they might use you to figure out how to get those milliseconds back. Yeah, correct. And like your application in your data center might be really fast, but when it's transiting over the internet, especially as it goes to regions like Asia and Africa and so on, uh, the user experience can be really bad because you're covering large distances over public environments. And Interesting. Once you know what paths people are taking, you can start to make the experience better by optimizing around it. Interesting. Okay. And give me a general sense here. I know you probably have tons of different customer stories, but I'm going to try and force you into an average just because we're short on time. I mean, are we talking average ACVs here in like 10 grand, a hundred grand, a million, 10 million? Generally, where do you play? Yeah. So we, we want, uh, we're a private company, so we don't share financials, but we have a ton of customers that are anywhere from the hundred K range to a few million dollars in annual spends. Right? Okay. So Good. these are, it's, it's really important uh, to be connected to your customers as, as a consumer brand, as well as to provide a continuous, highly productive environment for your employees. And so from a standpoint of uh, the risk and the importance of the internet, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want, I want to talk more about that, but let me, in terms of security and things of that nature, but first color the team for me. What's the team size today? Uh, the company? Yeah. Yeah. So we're about to closing to 250 employees now and we're headquartered in San Francisco, offices in Austin, uh, London, New York, uh, Japan as well, mm-hmm. and growing at a face fast pace, including a recent office in Dublin. That's great. So of the 250 people, walk me through your sales machine. So SDRs, AEs, customer success, what's the ratio between all of them? Yeah, so on the sales team in general, and and this is uh, sometimes it's a little hard to uh, decouple a certain set of functions. For example, we have a customer support function that that, uh, engages a lot with customers. And uh, they would be also helping sometimes in a POC if there's a certain uh, element of uh, integration working and so on. But I would say the sales team at this point, if I uh, combine everybody on the sales side, including SDRs and so on, would be somewhere in the 70 to 100 range. Okay, 70 folks there. And then, you know, a big debate right now with, with you know, CEOs I interview that are doing anywhere between 60 and 200 million bucks in ARR. The customer success is really important to drive expansion revenue, but people have tons of different models in terms of incentive structure. Some of them are quota carrying, some are not, some it's like a pool bonus. How do you generally incentivize your customer success team? Yeah, so customer success means different things in different uh, companies. For us, customer success team is actually more of a technical team that solve issues. So they're not the team that's renewing customer accounts. Uh, they actually engage with the customers to drive adoption, to make sure that the customers really understand how to use, get the most out of the platform. Uh, we actually accept we built that looks into uh, taking care of renewals, and that also is responsible to make sure that they're quarterbacking any kind of coordination and so on. And that team, you would incentivize them based on uh, a renewals target, which is fairly standard on the SaaS side of the world. Is that the AE that initially closed the deal that stays with the account or there is a pass off? Yep. No, so we don't pass off entirely because we work with enterprise customers and all our customers continue to grow. So we need an ongoing relationship, but we would add a team to the, the team that would close the account. But then we would have an account management team that would add on to it and they would be the quarterback for the relationship while the sales team will continue to engage. And look, our sales team is not transactional where they will disengage if there is no deal. The, the sure. idea of the sales team is they're, they're invested in the success of the customer 
And uh, oftentimes we don't have a customer that is buying in a quarter, but our team is still engaged heavily to make sure that they're getting the most value. And this is something that I, I think entrepreneurs should realize is you want to create some division of responsibility so the, the account management can own the renewals, but you never want the sales team to be only focused on new dollars and forget the customer otherwise. You, you The team's responsibility is to make the customer successful. Yeah, 100%. That's why these SDR to, to AE, to customer success, to onboarding is such, such a critical relationship. Um, that's helpful to understand. Um, one of the things, you know, Brian Halligan, when he came on, talked really importantly about how pricing axes enabled him to drive significant expansion revenue. And that was a critical moment for them because that's how you get really incredible exponential growth. So for you, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I'm a sample customer. Let's say I sign right now for $100,000 ACV account over the next year. I mean, what, what, what would you expect me to expand to in my next year's contract? Yeah. So a typical customer, let's say they sign up for $100,000. They would focus on uh, making sure that they can understand and improve their experience for like the two or three key apps that they care about or the two or three key apps that they're having some concerns or problems around. And as they see value, they would add more apps or they would add more coverage from a monitoring standpoint, or they would say, hey, uh, security team, this is really cool and very useful. You guys should look at it as well. So our accounts would go from you know 100K to a few hundred K to a million dollars. The customers that are spending multi-million dollars with us, they all started in the 50 to 100K range. Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, is it fair, you, you can kind of fairly predictably kind of put a pro forma together and assume accounts are essentially, you know, doubling in the first year? Uh, we so we have a very predictable model in terms of growths, but over time our land rates, our land sizes have also grown, gone up. Yeah. So when you model something that you want to, you know, model accurately over the last twenty four months or thirty six months, and your land sizes are also increasing, that changes the model. Yeah, it makes it, so it makes it difficult. Point, yeah. At this point, we're we're sort of continuously adapting it, but we have a very heavy uh, customer retention, plus also the customers continue to do more with us. And we focus on mid to large enterprises, right? So we have eight of the top 10 banks, we have 60 plus Fortune 500s, we have about 110 global 2000s. And these are not easy customers to get into business with. Uh, they they are really really uh, you know hard to sell to, and uh, we're proud of the fact that we've acquired them as customers, but they continue to uh, grow with the company, and uh, a lot of them are on multi-year deals to begin with uh, when they start engaging. So you said you're really proud of your really high retention. I mean, I would consider best-in-class gross retention before adding back expansion to be kind of north of ninety-seven, ninety-eight percent. Are you guys best-in-class? Yeah, we're best-in-class. So I, I the the retention ratio that uh, investors often focus on is the retention with growth, the dollar rate revenue retention. And we're best in class there. But when I take that out and just look at net retention, we're still best in class. Hold on, the- break. Sorry, I don't understand that. You know, I look at obviously, obviously net revenue retention being north of 140% being best in class and gross being yep. above 97% being best in class. Then, But how are those different? How are those two things I just said different than your two metrics? No, so the, the two metrics are right. There's retention, right? There's dollar retention. And then there's dollar expansion, but the, the terminology is often confusing in terms of different companies say different things. When they say DRR, they're including growth. Okay, so we're talking when about the same say, thing. Yeah, I think both metrics are equally important and both metrics are really strong. Yeah, so just to be clear, I would consider best-in-class net revenue retention to be north of 130, 140%. You guys are in that range? Yeah, yeah we're in. so here's the thing about DRR. We're in the range, but DRR is also not point of time. So when you look at these revenue retentions and so on, oftentimes what company would do is they would look at one point and then uh, uh, tell you 
pay our attention. But we actually track it uh, across the entire cycle of uh, the uh, growth of the company. So we we are constantly tracking that on a trailing twelve month basis as well. Yeah. So so help me understand that most people will track net revenue retention obviously on a on a cohort basis per month. So you'd go look at what signed up last month or sorry a, a yeah. year ago and look at what it is today. You're doing that as well. Yeah. So if you look at some of the S ones that are filed and so on. Uh, the revenue retention is done more of a point of time basis versus like a continuous graph. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Of course, cohort analysis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, listen, if you're looking at S1s, it means you're thinking about going public. So you're past 80 million bucks in ARR. So again, unfortunately, we cannot share. Hey, numbers, look at the smile, guys. Look at the smile on this, guys. <laughs> I will tell you this, that we're looking at a two, I, I guess, two, and two, and a, two to two and a half year horizon to be IPO ready. And the reason I say IPO ready is I think going public not a good, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, if effectively is like a milestone, but what we want to focus on is making sure that we continue to grow <clears throat> as a business and continue to really acquire great customers. So that's really what we're about. Yeah, that's fine. And then, uh, I won't push you there on obviously revenue metrics, but in terms of total customers you've scaled to today, what general range are you at? Yeah, we're at 500 plus customers at this point of time. Okay. Got it. And again, most of these, again, big kind of enterprise like accounts. <coughs> Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Now so for us, every logo is not, you know, uh, customer logos, uh, there are companies that work with small businesses that can say we have 5,000 customers and then our focus is like the really high and mid to high end of the enterprise base. So. Yep. Yep. And look, I mean, you, you know, 500 customers, you kind of gave me an ACV earlier of a hundred grand that should put you at about 4 million a month today or about 50 million bucks in ARR. I mean, generally, am I directionally correct? I would say like you have to track us for the next two years and you'll get all the details and then you can go back to the the historic financials we would have in the S1. And, no, and no, I don't, I don't, I don't like waiting, but look, you, you gave me a hundred grand ACV, you gave me 500. I'll just do some multiplication there. But listen, why, why set the, I mean, look, a lot of security companies I've talked to malware bites, no before stew. I mean, you know, they all, you know, they all kind of want to go public, right? Because ultimately by going public, there's something to be said about being a security company and being, more bona fide by being public. You can close deals faster. I mean, why, besides that reason, why else would you go public? There's plenty of money in private markets right now. Yeah. So just to be, uh, just to clarify, we're not a security company. We, we focus on more network performance, network intelligence, digital experience, but some of the use cases we track cover security. That aside, in general, companies go public for various reasons, including they need cash or employees need liquidity. For us, the primary reason that we would look at is whether it uh, creates more customer confidence and helps us from that standpoint. Uh, the, the fundamentals of the company are very strong. And given we were built on a small grant and customer acquisition, fortunately for us, we're not one of those companies that needs cash every 12 months to continue. Oh, hold on, Wait, I have to push you on this because I was just going to say, I really would have loved your story if it was just a million dollar grant and you were really smart and you figure out how to, you know, have VC in terms of vested customers and uh, instead of actual VC and being diluted, but you raised pretty significant capital. How much capital have you raised? Yeah. And so let's talk about that. Uh, the way we raised capital is when we believe that we can use capital to scale the company. And what I... What I want to point out, for example, is our last raise was in December 2015, and we haven't raised since then. And so anytime we raise, it's not because we need the money, it's because we believe that capital infusion will take it to the next level. And that's the difference between uh, companies that need to raise every 12 months, otherwise they actually end up not being able to operate, right? And that's not the mode. And what happens when you, when you raise a Series A on a slide deck, 
and then you go and build the product. By the time you've exhausted your Series A, you now have to raise your B because otherwise you can't take it to market. And so that's that's different in companies. And this, this we're not the only ones. There are companies that are more organically built in the early days where the growth is slower in the early days, but it's more sustainable because your fundamentals are really strong. Yeah, like no, it's that, built on that all makes good sense. That all makes good sense. But total to date, you've raised what, 60 million bucks? We've raised about 60 uh, till date, yeah. Yeah, and I think according to PitchBook, that last valuation was about 273 million bucks. So, I mean, look, that's nothing crazy, right? I mean, that strikes me as someone that's, or a company that's being financially disciplined and not trying to be some unicorn with no revenue. Yeah, and look, we've had revenue since the first year, right? So we we were not one of those companies that, that raised at a high valuation with a slide deck. And that's what I'm getting at is everything, the only currency we care about we don't really even care about valuations. And the only currency we care about is customers, customer bookings and growth and like really making an impact for the customers as well. Um, I was at an event uh, where we announced our cloud report recently comparing the different cloud providers. And there was an engineer from one of the banks, uh, one of the large banks there. And at the end of the event, he actually, he was one of our customers. He came and just gave me a hug and said, hey, there are so many times that you guys actually in the light on where the issues are when historically we would have just been yelled at for being the network guys that were that were creating problems and so those are the kinds of moments that we really really feel good about yeah, like making great. an impact on these lives that's great quick last two questions here because we're out of time a growth rate today obviously you're at big numbers now so 3xing year over year becomes more difficult uh last 12 months is it fair to say kind of high double digit growth so uh, Nathan, I wish I could go into all kinds of rates, but again, as a private company, we at a board no, level. No, you already did though. Really... You already did because you said over that you're eyeing an IPO ready in two to two and a half years. Yeah, I mean, so, so I, and you and you study S ones and you look at any S ones recently, they're looking at anywhere between call it thirty and eighty percent year over year growth. So the statement I made was just based off what you already said. Yeah, so we are. So I lost you for a second there. But uh, based on our historic and our future forecasted plans, uh, we're in the in a really good class of companies that have gone public, and we feel really good about it. And uh, at the same time, we're not the kind of company who needs that uh, crazy amount of cash to like get there. So, I just want anything else you want to add to that. Uh, no, I look. We were on a good ramp here, and uh, I feel excited about the the next two years ahead, two two and a half years ahead. That's great. Last question before we wrap up with the famous five: um, aggressiveness. Uh, I, I want to get in your head here. I'm not interested in your own number, but what I am interested in is theoretically, uh, if you are going to go acquire a hundred thousand dollar ACV account, how willing uh, are you to spend money to get that account? Are you happy with a twelve month payback? Will you push it to twenty four months? How aggressive are you being? I am. I'm losing you. So. The, the way I look at this from a sales and marketing expenses or cost of customer acquisition is more around how it trends over time. And so uh, the, the suggestion I give to entrepreneurs is you cannot ever look at cost of customer acquisition in vacuum, nor can you look at sort of uh, a metric and say, okay, this is good or bad. So when, when we think about cost of any kind of customer acquisition and the ratios, we tend to look at how do we model this and historically has this been moving in the right direction? As in our return on the customers uh, gets sooner and sooner, or are we actually going worse? Mohit, why do you actually make why do you make that statement that that getting sooner and sooner payback is actually better? A lot of companies as they prep for IPO, they actually push their dollar based CAC up from a dollar up to say two dollars. When you look at the last twelve IPOs, a lot of them are in the dollar twenty to dollar eighty range for a new dollar of ARR. Yeah, and look, there's two models, right? So there are companies like Atlassian, if you look at them, they have actually gone some got some really good organic growth and then they have started to 
create a strong base and scale. And there are moments of company when you want to change the ramp rate that you invest in sales and marketing costs. And the returns of those costs are not in that quarter. They return like a year later or four quarters later or five quarters later. And this is why I'm saying that when we, when anytime I consider a model for what our current expenses are and what our future expenses will be, they have to trend in the right direction. So the fundamentals of the company won't be good. If the dollar you spend to acquire a customer is getting worse and worse and worse, then that's not good for the business. Yeah, but that's what I'm asking. You use the word worse. There are a lot of companies that say, if you can't push your dollar-based CAC up, assuming because assuming whoever can spend the most to get a customer actually gets the customer, they would actually say spending more is better because you have confidence in your economics where you can afford to spend more. You're saying the opposite. You're saying, no, that's worse. So just to be clear, I want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. You are yeah, driving so your dollar-based CAC down. Yeah, so here's how I look at it, right? <laughs> There's two things. Can you get more out of a customer over time? And if you believe you can get more out of a customer over time, then you can afford to invest more in that customer. In general, when we think about cost of customer acquisition, we want to trend it down over a period of time. And that's the way we think about it. We don't want our cost of customer acquisition to go on. So I, I don't I don't know the financials of the companies that want to do that. Well, you just said it. You said if the lifetime value is higher, you're happy to push dollar-based CAC up. You're pushing it down, which means for whatever reason you believe lifetime value is getting less no, over time. I said, no, no, no. What I said is if you can create a scenario where for a specific class of customers, whether it's a specific, let's say you want to go after a federal market because you believe that if you go after that specific market, the model of custom of the model of the consumption of the product is different, but over a period of, of, of lifetime, like if the federal customers do six year contracts with it not which is non standard in your business of for other customers, then you can have a different model there for cost of customer acquisition. Yeah, that yeah. was my point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Gotcha. Yep. All right, let's wrap up quickly here. Famous five number one, favorite business book. Um, I would say the best book I enjoyed was the hard thing about hard thing about hard things. Yeah, Ben Horowitz. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying right now? Um, the CEO I probably respect a lot was uh, is uh, Godfrey Sullivan from Splunk. Godfrey Sullivan from Splunk. Good. Number four. Um, or number three, what do you guys use for your billing system? Uh, for, for customer billing? Yeah, like Zora or... or yeah, Apple. we use Zora, yeah. Okay, got it. Number four, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Uh, I would say between six and eight. Okay, it's so pretty good. And what's your situation? Married, single, kiddos? Uh, I'm married. I have two kids. Married, two kids. And how old are you, Mohit? Uh, I'm in my late 30s, but I won't be able to use that line next year. (laughs) I like it. Positioning. All right. Last question. What do you wish your 20 year old self knew? Uh, So that's a good question. I think the the, the main thing I would the main thing I'm surprised by if I look back is how quickly the role of a CEO changes. And uh, sometimes when you make that transition, you don't end up doing all the, the things that make an immediate impact. Uh, as easily as you scale. So uh, I would just say if I had to go back and inform my 20-year-old, I'd say be prepared for more accelerated changes in your in your role than, than you would expect. Guys, there you have it. Mohit founded 2010 on a very small grant. Now 250 people, 1,000 eyes again, helping teams, really network teams, make really what's invisible visible so they can go attack the right problems, whether it's website loading time, a cybersecurity use case, or other things. They have over 500 customers paying caught on average $100,000 ACV. Net revenue retention, world-class in the 130-ish, 140% range with an eye to the being IPO ready in the next two to two and a half years in Mohit's words based between San Fran and other remote locations. Mohit, thanks for taking us to the top. Thank you.